Right, if you have a Bible, join me in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, pray for our evening, and then we'll get started with our, our class. Father, we pray for your grace to be poured, upon, poured out upon us this evening by helping understand, by causing us to understand your word. The doctrine of humanity, what your word says about what it means to be us, is the most confused and contested doctrine in the Bible right now, today. And our world and social media, especially in the West, especially in our country, swirls with competing ideas about what's wrong with the world, what will make the world right, what it means to be male or female, to be gendered or not gendered, family, sexuality, society, and more. So Lord, we pray for your grace to be upon us, to, to think well and wisely by the power of your spirit about what your word says, that you would help us ask good questions, to think hard about your scriptures, but to also be thoughtful about what we hear and see in this world. And Lord, we recognize that in a room like this, that there is going to be believers and maybe people investigating Christianity. There's going to be people who are uh, mature in the faith and know your word well, and people who are just beginning to take their first steps in you, Jesus. So I pray that your sanctifying grace would be upon us all as we talk and think and ask questions and more, and that you would bless not only this evening, but all of our evenings together as we think about what it means to be made in the image of God. So Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in many ways, last spring, I did a class called Text and Canon. A number of you were at that, and we talked about the origin and transmission of the Bible. How do we know sneaky Christians didn't sneak into it and change it? Things along those lines and more. The beginning of tonight is a little bit like that. Tonight is looking to establish the foundation, the framework, and the basis for the next 11 weeks, Lord willing, to follow. So we're not exactly going to be jumping into Genesis 1 this week. Instead, we're going to take time to think about why the Bible is the basis for all the authority and all the decisions that we make in life. So for some of you, this is a refresher. It's a good refresher. For some of us, this may be new information. And then we're going to get into some controversial stuff the back half of the evening. Um, so that's where we're going to go tonight. I had you open up to Romans chapter 8 to explain why there's a fancy name for this class, right? So the fancy name is Imago Christi. How many of you have ever heard the phrase Imago Dei? Most of you. Technically, it's Imago Dei is how you say it in Latin. And that's the fancy Latin way of saying image of God. And Imago Christi is the Latin way of saying image of Christ. And if you look in Romans 8, and if you join with me in the precious passage, verse 28, the Apostle Paul is mid-thought, but listen to what he says. In Romans 8, 28, I'm showing you why this is the title for this class on the doctrine of humanity. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. And here it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, note these words, to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this is one of the most important passages in all the Bible because this explains what God is up to in the world, especially among believers. God's aim by his spirit and with his word in this life until he brings us into glory is he is conforming us. He's molding us and shaping us and carving us, doing everything necessary to shape us into the image of Christ. And that's the name of this class, Imago Christi. The ultimate goal, the ultimate end for which God created people is that we would be made into the image of Jesus. And we'll see what that means, especially next week. To be made into the image of Jesus and have humanity truly restored to us. So what we're doing this evening is this is not a class on sanctification. This is, there's, there's Bo, raise your hand if you don't have notes, he'll get them to you. So this is not a class on sanctification, if you know what that means. This is not a class on the church. This is not a class on any number other amazing doctrines. This is a specific class on the doctrine of anthropology, a fancy way of saying the doctrine of humanity. So what I want to do in the beginning is you get your notes. You can look right there on page one. I've given you my notes exactly. I didn't really give you room to take extra notes. You may want to squeeze it into the margins. Perhaps I'll give you more space next week. But because we're looking at so much scripture, I would rather you be able to jot down questions or comments or things that are said along the way um, so that you can have my notes in front of you. And along the way, feel free to ask a question. Uh, This is getting recorded, and so a mic will be brought to you, and you need to speak into the mic. I will shut you down if you try to ask a question without using a mic because I love you and love the people who are going to listen to this online, and it's horribly annoying did not hear someone ask a question, then hear an answer. So uh, if you ask questions, you can, you can raise your hand. So to begin with, what we're going to do the next little bit of time is we're going to think about what the Bible says about the Bible. Because if you don't know Jesus or if you're new to the faith, you're going to see why we believers believe that the Bible is the foundation, authority, and light to the dark world, and why the various um, controversial topics that we're going to look at in the coming weeks, why the Bible is the answer and not something other than the Bible is the answer for for why we're making those claims. So so let's let's walk through this. So so number one, section one, our foundation and source of authority is the Bible. So I'm going to give you a handful of convictions drawn from Scripture about rather than just saying the Bible says it, so let's believe it, which we should, but let's actually see what the Bible says about itself so that we can understand why we should trust the Bible. Any questions before we jump into the verses? Okay, number one, the first thing you need to know about the Bible and be reminded about the Bible is that it is inspired. So that's a, uh, we'll see that word in a few moments, but that's a fancy way of saying that when you read the Bible, what the Bible tells us about the Bible 
is that all scripture is directly from God through men. What the Bible says, God says. It is not a record of religious hunches or speculations or experiences or impressions or anything else that you can think of. Rather, the Bible itself is revelation. It's not a window that we look through to try to discover revelation. Revelation is in the ink on the pages you hold in your lap. So, so if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. So, for example, if you look here at the first text, 2 Timothy 3, listen to this as the foundation of our understanding for this class. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And here it is. All scripture is breathed out by God. Older translations, older English translations say inspired. All scripture is breathed out by God. And note this, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Basically, knowing right, knowing wrong, getting right, and staying right. That's what the Bible does for our lives. Verse 17, so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So when the Apostle Paul writes this, you can see in this amazingly dense passage on the one hand scripture is from god it's breathed out by god so our task is to inhale when we hear scripture to mix the metaphor but we also see that scripture equips everybody who uses it for every good work there's the charge to preach it and then we see at the end there's a time coming when people aren't going to endure sound teaching they're going to hear what the bible says they're going to say nope They're going to look for people who are going to say what they want to hear them say, put them into positions of speaking authority, and then sit under that teaching. And then so it says in the end of verse 4, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander or drift off into myths. That's why the Bible is our bedrock anchor and light for this class. We'll skip down to number two, the second truth about The Bible, the second conviction that's going to guide these next 12 weeks, the Bible is trustworthy and true. The Bible is always right in what it affirms. The Bible will never, ever, ever lead you astray. To walk in the truth is to first be made right with God through repentance and faith in Jesus. But secondly, to walk in the truth is also to live out how God designed life to work best. And if you want to know how life works best, how our relationships, friendships, work, everything, it's in the Bible. God blesses faithfulness to him in his word. So God is not going to bless what he has already condemned in his word. 
And so what's important for the Christian and for us is to put on the mind of Christ. In other words, think the Bible's thoughts. So for example, the Bible's trustworthy and true. Psalm 119 right here at the bottom of page one. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus says at the top of page two, in John eight, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if there was ever a time in our day and age where people were confused, maybe thinking that in this age of liberation, they don't recognize that they're actually being shackled by untruths and lies that may feel good for a moment, but in the end, not only lead to ruin in this life, but eternal ruin in the next. Jesus is so audacious to claim, and he is absolutely right, that he is, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So to the degree to which we walk in the light of Jesus' word is the degree to which you will be set free. Again, marriage, parenting, gender, sexuality, work, politics, economics, and more. Jesus' truth and his truth alone will set us free. We live in a day and age, we're going to see a little bit later, when there are competing truth claims that claim to set people free. And Jesus is claiming his truth and his truth alone will set people free. Number three, the third thing that we learn about the Bible, the third core conviction for this class, is the Bible is authoritative. Right, so if it's, if it's inspired or breathed out by God, it's profitable. If it is true and if it will set us free, then also it's authoritative. God, because he's God, has all the might, right, and he has the foresight, all the knowledge, to direct the affairs of humanity. He is the king of creation, and he has given all authority in heaven and earth to Jesus Christ, to whom all are accountable and every knee will bow. God is going to hold, specifically Jesus Christ, on the day of judgment, is going to hold every politician accountable for his politicking, every economist for his economics, every human being for everything that they have done, every word they have said, every thought they have thought, and how they have interacted or not interacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can think about Romans chapter 1. And how people suppress the truth about God revealed in creation. And they worship and serve creation rather than the creator. It's important to know that this is the edict of the king. So Jesus has spoken. Here's his book. And this is all that he has given us that he wants us to, knew, to know in life. He, he, this has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So this is authoritative. So for example, look at John 12 here in our notes. Jesus says, the one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Or look at the next verse, Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, meaning the whole book. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, 
of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So even our motives matter. And no creature, verse 13, is hidden from his sight. Notice the change from word of God as the sword to now Jesus, the word in the flesh. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So all of God's word will hold all of God's people accountable. That's why thinking about gender, sexuality, and marriage, and what it means to be human, is very important. Because what our world is saying is in direct contradiction to what the Bible says. Uh, Moving on, number four, the Bible is self-sufficient. Normally we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. I put self in front of it. I hope to explain why. So skip down to the verse first, 2 Peter chapter 1. So his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, where do we get it? Is it it, like a mystical mist that flows into us and we just, that's how we have it? Look what it says. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature. So Peter's argument is that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness through, in essence, the whole Bible. So what does it mean in the Bible is sufficient? And this is, this may be, I don't want to pit these different doctrines against each other, but here's where you're going to see the greatest assault in our cultural moment against Scripture. Because what our cultural moment says is that the Bible is insufficient. So, for example, here's what I say. The Bible is not deficient in its presentation of the true story of the world. The Bible is not lacking in such a way that outside sources are needed to correct the Bible or make the Bible understandable. God, the all-knowing, all-wise creator, has communicated himself to us in his word clearly and capably. Just because some things in the Bible are hard to understand or even hard to believe because they go against what our culture tells us, just because things are hard to understand in the Bible does not reveal a deficiency in God, but in us and our finitude, our smallness and creatureliness. So neither earth sciences, biological sciences, or social sciences provide a corrective to the Bible or the interpretive key to the Bible. And whereas the church fought against maybe earth sciences, still does, but um, things that were spoken regarding creation account, now it's shifted to social sciences, where, well, the Bible is only understandable if read through the, the lenses of understanding the various social sciences, which we'll talk about in a few moments. So that's why I say the Bible is self-sufficient. It doesn't need an interpretive key from outside to understand it. Pause. Any questions on that? Question you want to ask for a friend instead? Okay. Number five, the fifth conviction is the Bible's the true story of the world from end to beginning. So God the Son incarnate Jesus Christ, our sacrifice and Savior, for all who repent and believe, Jesus is the plan, point, and purpose of the Bible. The Bible teaches us what's wrong with the world, 
what God is doing to make it right, and the eternal future for those who follow Jesus and those who don't follow Jesus. So it's the true story of the world. It is a meta-narrative. That's a fancy way of saying the big story. That's important because our world doesn't believe in a meta-narrative. So we're going to circle back to that in a little bit. And you can look at Luke 24 there at the bottom of page 2 where Jesus talks about how the whole Bible is about him. A couple other things. The sixth conviction is the Bible is the word of salvation. Only the Bible, top of page 3, only the Bible records how God has made a way to make us right with him, rescue us from his wrath, and adopt us as his children through Jesus Christ. There's no other place or person to look for salvation outside of Scripture. Now, I'm pointing that out, not just because if you're investigating Jesus, I want you to hear the claim of the Bible, but I also want you to know that when we, uh, in the next few minutes, begin to look at what the way our world presents different competing ideologies swirling around, they are all, in essence, salvation projects. They're all attempts to, in essence, using Bible language, to, for someone to self-redeem and self-save so that they might be or feel right in this world and feel accepted. And so that's why it's important to recognize that only the Bible is actually the true source of salvation. So think earlier, Jesus said the truth will set you free. Or here, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or look at this next passage, Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, that makes the whole world, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So there's that confession and belief part we read in those first few verses, but then in verse 17 I just read, but what we need is we need to hear the story of Jesus, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, lived in our place, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and when we believe that, when we hear that, the Holy Spirit puts faith in our hearts and then we exercise that and believe. So those are the six core convictions that are going to undergird this class. So if we're, in, if we're in episode seven or segment seven and we get tangled in the weeds on some issue, I'm going to point back to this very first one and say, well, see, look, here's our grounds. The Bible's authoritative. That's why I reject the false authority of this so-called source or something along those lines. A couple other things before we begin to think about our world around us. Uh, before that, any questions on the six core convictions regarding what the Bible says about itself. Middle of page three, some other things that we need to be aware of. Scripture forewarns us to be on guard against destructive and damning false beliefs. So um, ideas that float around are not neutral. We'll talk about that also in a few moments. 
And so scripture warns us about any ideas or beliefs, anything that is in contradiction to what the Bible teaches. Listen to these warnings. Number one, 2 Corinthians, top of middle page three. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the aim of this course together. To expose false ideas that exist in the world, to show them for their falseness, to destroy them with the truth of Scripture so that people would actually be set free into the freedom they were trying to find in that false thing in the first place and find it in Jesus. Longer section, some verses here in the middle of Colossians chapter 2. Again, another warning. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive. You hear that? See to it. There's, we have a responsibility together as a family in Christ. See to it that no one takes you all captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world. Not according to Christ. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism. That's inflicting yourself with various kinds of pains. Or, and worship of angels. Going on in details about visions. Puffed up without reason by his uh, fleshly sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourishing it together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See, at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. And lastly, 1 Timothy 6, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So what I want you to see is that the Bible, the New Testament takes very seriously and is very honest with you and me that there's competing ideas, philosophies, religions, religious practices, and more that people are going to grab microphones and screens and shout in them to seek to seduce us, to just get us a few degrees off of following Jesus faithfully in the purity and clarity of his word, the sufficiency of his word. And so the issue, this warning is laid down for us 2,000 years ago. And so for 2,000 years at different eras of church history, when you read church history, you see that different heresies, false teachings have arisen up, and the church spotted the false teaching, had a council, and then wrote a creed to establish that the whole universal church agrees on this teaching. No, Jesus is not a created being. He is the pre-existent son of God, second person of the Trinity, who became incarnate as Jesus Christ. Um, Contrary to the, the heresy of 
well, Jehovah's Witness, ancient Arianism, and more. So what's happening today is in our current cultural moment, as I, just by way of reminder, the entire biblical doctrine of what it means to be a human is what's under assault, every single facet of it. Top of page four. Lastly, before we move on, Jesus forbids us to work against him. What do I mean by that? Luke 11. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he's in a dispute with the religious leaders. They're claiming him that he's basically filled with Satan and that he's basically Satan casting out demons when he was casting out demons. So uh, Jesus didn't like that. And so he went to a verbal duel with the religious leaders. And here's what he says. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A divided household falls. And then he talks to them about how um, he's casting out the demons in the power of God. And then verse 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So think about that. Jesus drew a very strong line in the sand right there. There's exactly zero neutral ground with Jesus. There's no demilitarized zone between the ways of Jesus and the ways of the world. And so what a Christian must always be doing, given the previous point, we don't want to adopt philosophies, ideologies, theories, and more that sound Christianish, and adopt them and then begin to propagate them, tweet them, post them on social media, when in fact what we're doing is actually working against Jesus and doing the job of the devil rather than the job of a Christian following Jesus. So Jesus is very serious. It actually matters that we are submitted to him and following him. And then next, another groundwork piece Jesus says the evidence of our love and belief is obedience to his word. So we don't get pick and choose theology. We either take all of Christ or none of Christ. And one of the things, great religious practices we see in our day and age is the sin of syncretism, where people sync different parts of different religions to kind of, they basically cobble together a Jesus and their own image. And then worship that false Jesus. So Jesus says, John 14, 23 and 24, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That word keep means guard, it means obey, it means do. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him, we will make our home with him. And just so you know that the opposite is true, verse 24 Whoever does not love me, Jesus says, does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So Jesus is not talking about sinlessness. Jesus is talking about willful, ongoing, habitual sin or disregard. Being okay with either believing contrary to Jesus or living contrary to Jesus and saying, it's fine. No big deal. Jesus, Jesus doesn't care. He died on the cross for my sins. I can keep doing these sins. Or however we'd frame it, 
But, but for those of us who love Jesus, we actually so treasure our Savior because he has saved people like you and me. Right? If we were to put on the mental display of our hearts and minds the last 24 hours, we would all be shocked at each one of our minds and hearts in the last 24 hours. But Jesus came, think about the sermon on Sunday, became a humble servant, a slave, washed the disciples' feet, went to the cross for their sins, and rose from the grave later. He did that for people like you and me. And our response to that is to love the Lord. But what Jesus says here is that loving him is not saying, I love you, Lord, but then going and living contrary to him. He's saying, if, you lo- if, if anyone loves me, he's going to keep my word. And so his word involves what it means to be human, what it means, what marriage is, what parenting is, what sexuality is, and more. So the, Jesus says the evidence of our love or the proof of our false love is how um, our attitude and motive to obeying him and keeping his word. And when we break his word and when he lets us see that, we humbly repent and give that to him, and he still gladly welcomes us because he had died for that sin too. So summary of this section. The Bible is self-consciously, the Bible self-consciously presents itself to us as the source of all truth to be believed, treasured, and obeyed. And a Christian, we've got to be on guard, and we can't knowingly contradict or work against the truth of Scripture. So... Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And if you love me, you'll keep my word. If you don't love me, you don't keep my word. The implication is that this reaches every area of life. There is no nook and cranny of your life to which Jesus doesn't say, that's mine, or that's not mine. He says it's all his. That means that your relationships, your friendships, your dating, your, your, your marriage, your voting belongs to Jesus. How we live, move, and have our being in this world all belongs to Jesus. We can enter into dating relationships that are against the will of Christ. Disobedience to his word. We can vote in disobedience to his word. Believe it or not. And more. And so what we want to do is we want to think about how does his word impact every area of our life. Alright, that's the end of the first section that we're covering tonight. Any questions on that? Review for some, new for others. Thoughts, comments. Yes, Jennifer. And Jennifer, here comes the mic. Thank you very much. Um, I had a question that went back to the elemental spirits of the world. Uh Uh-huh. Can you kind of define that and give examples or something, what that means? I'll, I'll try to kind of define it because it's, it's, it's actually kind of tricky, right? So there's debate. What it most likely means is when Paul elsewhere talks about the teaching of deceitful spirits and demonic activity. Um, so one way that I think that works out, if you've ever heard the claim that, you know, people who've studied ancient religions and say that Christianity is just a cobblestone mosaic of ancient pagan religions around, and so therefore that disproves Christianity. On the contrary, I think it proves Christianity because we know that Satan, the devil, is active, 
and he's able to hear hear and see God's plan unfold as the word is given. And so he is going to establish um, false religions that are going to look similar to his plan but deviate from it. I think that's part of what's behind elemental spirits of the world, basically demonic teaching. So, for example, um, some of the... the um, in Deuteronomy 18, and Deuteronomy, I forget, uh, Moses talks about two tests for false prophets. Now, one of them is the false prophet who just teaches things that are outright contradictory to Scripture. But another one is that a false prophet who performs miracles, like think of uh, Pharaoh's Jonas and Jambres, the two guys who did the magic tricks. So... It seems like it's possible that someone can just stand here and make it snow on their hand and then just and then that's a miracle. We all go and then he says Jesus is not God follow me or something like that. I I, so I think that demonic activity is actually real. So elemental spirits I think is in that just emphasis on I think I think I think. Yeah, very good question. Brother Craig when the mic comes. My question is um, from the uh, section E summary, the, the second statement. So it says, a Christian cannot knowingly contradict or work against the truth of Scripture. It, would he be a Christian? I'm, I'm trying to understand your wording on that. Thank you for asking a clarifying question. Yeah, so um, yes and no. So what does that mean? So um, everything, if we name the name of Christ, everything is a discipleship issue. And we have to remember the doctrine of sanctification. None of us came out of the womb uh, with perfect doctrine. And so, um, for example, I would say that my understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity from the Bible is much stronger now than when I got saved at 21 in college. And I probably had some pretty legitimate heresies coursing through my veins. So the difference would be if someone came up to me and said, hey, Dave, when you said this, I'm going to show you from the Bible that that's actually not true. In that moment, if, if I resist in my discipleship, knowing what Scripture says, that begins to call into question whether or not I'm actually a false convert or a true convert. And then that requires patience. So that's called Matthew 18. And however long that takes, that is in the process of helping a brother or sister. That's what I mean by discipleship issue. So if someone, so, so when we get to homosexuality, for example, that's kind of low-hanging fruit. The Bible condemns homosexuality as a sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. Uh, refusing the gospel is. However, if someone is confronted with, here's the Bible's teaching, and says, no, the Bible is wrong, it's a good thing and we should embrace homosexuality, they have denied the faith, in essence, and can't be considered a believer. And at, at that point, Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5 would be an action, and they'd have to be removed from the church until the, their doctrine was corrected. Does that kind of help a little bit? Yes and no? Okay. We can talk further a little bit more after that. Yeah. Right? So the, so the danger is that the, the, the extremes, the one error is to spot someone's theological error and just say you're not saved. We don't have permission to do that. 
But we also don't have permission not to engage in discipleship with somebody and help them continue to embrace the truth of Scripture as it pertains everywhere. As it pertains everywhere. Let me talk more about that. Very good questions. Thank you for those. What else? Yeah. Hold on. You have to get the microphone. Sorry. Not sorry. This is back to like the front page. But just when we talk about like that the Bible is inspired by God, um, do the, like especially in like the New Testament, did the writers know that they were writing scripture? Did they know that what they were writing was inspired? Such a good question. They did. Yeah. So, for example, even Peter knew that Paul's writings were inspired. Uh, they, they all knew. So, so as a church, we're going through John right now on Sunday mornings. And at the end of John, we're going to see that Jesus, well, in a few weeks, we're going to see that Jesus is going to tell them he's going to send the Holy Spirit to continue to guide them and remind them of all that he said and taught and give them more truth. So Jesus is stating there that he's going to inspire them to write more Bible. Should we, we should expect to have books from Peter and guys like that. So yeah, they knew. Good question. Yeah, Porter. So uh, concerning the question about meta-narrative, uh, uh. You, you mentioned that the world doesn't have a meta-narrative. How would you define then something like the Big Bang Theory or concepts of, say, like 1619 Project and CRT, where they're trying to redefine kind of narratives about human, and, uh, human existence? Hold that. We're going to get to it a little bit. But let me just give a... a foretaste, I don't know what the right word is to say, a preview, that's what I'm trying to say. So, well, because our world doesn't have the truth of Christ, it will inherently be contradictory, because every appeal to authority ultimately is a circular reasoning at some point. So we're appealing to the Bible, why? Because the Bible tells me to appeal to the Bible. Now, there is a lot of evidence that, um, why we should trust the Bible, fulfilled prophecy, textual transmission, things along those lines. But that means that the world is going to inherently self-contradict at some point if you begin to ask why enough and drill down. So Big Bang Theory, that, uh, that could be something that the world is saying that's an origin story, but there, it, it's because it's earth sciences or ast astronomy, uh, then it's going to be something that doesn't necessarily impact how we live, move, and have our being in this world, right? But then with like 1689 or these other things, they're going to be slices, but not an overarching, comprehensive explanation of what's wrong with the world, what will make it right, and what will solve it. Although I think critical theory in all of its varieties attempts to do that. So critical theory, which we'll get to, is a uh, multifaceted, uh, multi-headed dragon of understanding th uh, that is hard to pin down and then the scholars within the, all the various camps co um, compete with each other but the big idea is it's a worldview it's, it's a functional religion actually so we'll get to that in a minute uh, great questions you guys anything else? okay let's move on so page 5 who or what has the authority 
to define and decide what it is to be human. So that's, that's what we want to think about. And so if we were to get a microphone and maybe go walk out and walk around, um, I'm just kind of picking some low-hanging fruit of what I think people might say, who or what has the authority to define what it is to be human. Uh, now, you know the punchline where we're going. It's going to be God in Christ tells us what it means to be human, and he tells us in his word. But here I want us to think about some things. So number one, uh, in, in our world, with the rise and advents of academic institutions, our world, especially in the West, has looked to increasingly the social sciences and the humanities to define what it is to be human. So you have heard me say twice from the pulpit now in the last year or so, refer to the secular seminary, right, NAU, and actually all academic institutions, right? So you're the high school or, or any institution, and I'm going to try to explain why I say that and defend it a little bit. But let's walk through this. So some people are going to say, well, who has the authority to define and decide what it is to be human? The academy does. Right, so we're going to have our different academic departments. Within those departments are going to be scholars, and then the scholars ought to be writing and doing research, quantitative analysis. They're going to write peer-reviewed peer journal articles, and then they're going to be peer-reviewed amongst the echo chamber. Uh, and then hopefully it's honest, and then it gets published, and then it's received as truth. Um, so I want you to think through, this is kind of a hodgepodge of social sciences and humanities. Um, when you go into the College of Social Sciences or Humanities, here are different sub-disciplines that you will have an option to get a degree in. So, for example, philosophy. So think about what philosophy is. Philosophy is the study of reality, of, of, um, of being, what does it mean to exist, of human nature. Philosophy is the study of the relationship between the mind and matter. Key questions that philosophy asks, look at these eight. Um, does God or do the gods exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Who or what am I? What is consciousness? What is the nature of existence? Do I have free will? That's often called ontology or metaphysics. What is knowledge and is knowledge possible? It's epistemology. How should we conduct ourselves? Ethics. How should we govern ourselves? You can see that pushes into politics. What is the good life? What is death? And, and more. There's many more questions. Okay, let's, let's keep going here. Look at the next one. Anthropology. That's what we're doing here. It Kind of. They do it differently in the academy. It's the study of human societies and cultures and their development. Psychology is the study of human mind and behavior. So it's kind of the why. Sociology is the study of interpersonal and group dynamics, social change, and stratification among peoples. Political science is the study of how law and justice and government is established and exercised. Legal studies is how law shapes and is shaped by political, economic, and cultural forces. Economics is the study of how individuals and organizations exchange goods. Human or environmental geography 
is a study of human impact and interchange typically in cities with the environment. And history is a study of past eras and events of humanity. And then um, usually involving some interpretation of those events, though not always. So if you look, those are nine different areas. There's more, and then there's just branches out to many subdisciplines of those. All of those nine and more are all addressed in the first 12 chapters of the Bible. Every single one of them. Maybe in seed form, a little bit less than the other. Like, well, where's politics and government? That's the Noahic covenant. Um, or when you get into economics, it's actually there's implications there and more, which we'll see down the road, Lord willing. But, so now, think about these ideas. I said secular seminary, right? Seminary is the place you're supposed to go where you are studying theology. That is, studying God himself and who he is in all of his word. And all there is to know and think about him. That's what theology is. So seminary, Bible college trains you in that. What the academy does, and the reason I say secular seminary, is that students go through, I went through, my, I, I, I have a bachelor's in social sciences, and I took all of these classes, I didn't take legal studies, and my degree focused on environmental geography, but did a lot in psychology, sociology, and more, when I was an unbeliever. And all of these classes, the reason I say secular seminary, is all of these disciplines are pursued, explored, and defined devoid of God. There's, well, it's, um, I would say there's no theology. That's not true. We'll talk about that in a moment. That's why I say secular seminary. So these are the alternative beliefs to what the Bible teaches across the whole Bible about all these disciplines. But... These are people, philosophers, trying to think and answer all the things that God already said on the first page of the Bible and more. That's an important point to underscore. And I want to tell you that the notion of secularism is a myth. It is a lie that has been foisted upon us and does not exist. So how can I make that claim? Let me just read what I have here. Secular, by definition, means attitudes, assumptions, actions that have no religious or spiritual basis. Pause. So the idea is that there's a, there's a way to um, carve out portions of your life where God does not exist and Jesus has no rights or claim or nothing to say. That's what secularism says. And the atheist, meaning the person who believes that there is no God, or the agnostic, can find um, shelter in this idea because what they can do is, as a secularist, we can just change it to worldview. The atheist has a worldview. They have a philosophy of, is there a God? Why is there anything at all? Where did the world come from? What are ethics and more? But the atheist is able to bring his or her worldview into, the, say, the public square or into the academy, but the theist is not able to bring their worldview, which means then only one person or one camp is able to argue for a potential truth, or in this case, a, a lie, there is no God. That's why secularism is a lie. 
And plus, Jesus claims authority over every single aspect of all of humanity. There is, there is no part of human existence to which Jesus does not say, that belongs to me. It all belongs to him. But we know from a biblical worldview, this is the next sentence here on the bottom, page five. Sorry. On a biblical worldview, there is no such thing as secular since all people are worshipers. Does anybody remember what Romans 1 says? That what, when people, um, what they do with the truth of God in Romans 1, 25 without looking. There's like whisper prayers. Who's going to go for it? Who's going to do it? They suppress it in unrighteousness. Yes. Yeah. They worship and serve. They exchange the truth for a lie, 125, and worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And it says they exchange the truth for God to worship um, it's the bees. Bugs, bodies, and beasts is a way of saying what Paul said. Anything in creation other than God himself was exchanged. So the claim of the Bible is that every human being is religious to the core. There is no unreligious human being. That's why secularism is a lie. And even the atheist, even though his theology is very short, there is no God, is still by God's design suppressing the truth about God known in creation. And therefore, that's why it's a lie. So for the academy to be intellectually honest ought to bring in theology and other competing worldviews to then work through uh, the meaning of those truths, especially in the, or the, the, the truth claims, rather, of these different areas. So again, we're asking the question from a worldly perspective, go outside these walls, hey, uh, who has the right and authority to define what a human is? The anthropologist is going to say, I do. And the philosopher is going to say, I do. When Jesus says, no, I do. Um, let's let me finish reading this. Therefore, every field of human inquiry is not only... So, please note this. This is the middle of that secular paragraph. Every field of human inquiry is not only theological to its core, it's also moral to its core. To be a mathematician is moral. Now, what do I mean by that? Because we are moral beings and we can attach that little tiny theological question, why, to everything. Now, it goes to motive and more, but you should see here, every field of human inquiry is theological to the core because the, the world is theological to, to the core because the whole universe is God's temple and it all belongs to him. Questions or comments so far on the academy and secularism before we move on to a new topic? Observations, comments, Bo? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> Craig. Craig with the microphone. Thank you, Jeff. I 
thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm missing the term sin. Is Where does that sin fall in with what is being presented tonight? Sin and repentance. I guess those are the two. Good question. Sin and repentance. When we move on into the different doctrines, we're going to see that we have to conform to what Jesus says. And if we refuse what Jesus says, it displays sin that's in us, which we need to put off false belief and put on true belief. But if you don't know Christ, just understand that the first step is not getting your um, ducks in a row. It's getting yourself submitted to Jesus and believing that he's your savior. That you are a sinner who's in need. So if you've ever lied, stolen, if you've ever been selfish, if you've ever disobeyed your parents, if you've ever done wrong, if you've ever felt guilty or shame, that is in your heart a mechanism of God revealing that you need him and give those things to him and believe in him and you'll be saved. That's where sin comes in. Mandy. Um, so this may be too big of a question for right now. It's sort of an application question. But um, I guess my question for you is, in a country that is not a theocracy, right, uh-huh. that doesn't have one chosen religion that's sort of enforced everywhere, um, what... Hmm. So the goal, right, would in theory be neutral in educational spheres so that there is not holding to one particular philosophy. Right now it's secular, which is basically atheistic, right? So if we were going to have neutral um, teaching, what would that look like? Is that even possible? And if not, does it mean that in a pluralistic society like ours, we just all break up into our separate camps and have a Christian school and a Muslim school and a secular school, like an atheist school? Do you know what I mean? I do. That's a that's a very big question. And there's a whole lot of strings to get pulled on that one. I think that everyone's going to be held accountable for either raising or not raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So when it comes to our kids and whatnot, um, and, and more, um, I'm not fully prepared to answer that. I don't have an answer for it yet. I have an answer I'm thinking through, but I'm not sure if I'm able to say it yet. That's a really good question, Mandy. Yes, in the back. Can't see who it is. Oh, Sierra Bosworth. Sierra Bosworth. Um, I just wondered if you could maybe first explain a little more what you mean by defining what it is to be human. And then also whether you believe that the academia really tries to decide what it is to be human rather than to discover it and what that would look like. Good question, Sierra. Uh, I'm going to argue next week from the Bible, so not this week, that to be human at its core is to be the image of God. And then that has a number of things that flow from it. So so stay tuned next week. Um, and then... I don't know the motive of every every academic over there, or anywhere for that matter. And I think that some people absolutely think that they have the right to define it, because we there's megalomaniacs 
uh, in the globe right now who think that they uh, know what's best for the whole world and more, which is premised on their view of what humanity is and whatnot. Um, I do think that many of them, especially if they're more leading into science, are going to try to use statistics and scientific inquiry to discover those things like you asked. One good thing that postmodernism has given us is that there is no neutral person. And so the notion of just a sterilized, pure science and going into inquiry and looking to discover what it means to be human always comes in with assumptions preloaded and biases. Now, the scientist is supposed to identify those and put those off and, again, be um, uh, sanitized. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So... I don't know if that helps a little bit, hopefully. Very good question. Oh, yeah, over here. So as someone who does attend, like, a secular seminary, I guess, like you would call it, how are we supposed to respond to that when what we are being taught is from a secular worldview? And how are you supposed to, like, respond? Let me give you two or three hopefully somewhat helpful and then maybe not helpful answers. The helpful answer is know the Bible better than anything. Um, I don't know if this is true, but I heard once that people who try to find counterfeit money don't spend time trying to memorize what all the counterfeit bills are. They just look at a true dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill. They memorize that so well that they can spot any other lie. I don't know if that's true, but it works really well for this. So here you are. You're, you're, um, I think the Lord has you here for a purpose. You're going to this school. You can be a light for Jesus and be a witness for him. There's a many people who have gone, gone through this school. So w- number one, know the Bible very well. Number two, be tied in with a good community of believers especially those who are older than you who are able to give you help because it's going to be a case-by-case basis of like how in the world do I deal with this? So not just older believers, but also like Hannah and, the, and, the, and other people who are involved in young adult ministry who have just graduated from, from NAU. They can also navigate some professors and things like that. Um, prayer. And then the last one is know, know that if you challenge a professor – most likely he or she is going to tear you apart and shut you down and potentially blacklist you. They're very smart people who um, know their field very well and think they might know our field of Jesus very well, but they don't. Maybe make some soundbite claims that aren't true and try to shut it down. And so just, just know that if you raise your hand and ask a question or something along those lines, that will happen. And then you have a family here to love you and want to talk talk with you about that and help you through it. Hopefully that, that helps. Dave, just in uh, just looking at time. Oh yep. Um, you have a lot, quite a bit to cover. Yeah. Maybe we can got a lot of good stuff that might answer some questions. Maybe we can push forward and then take some questions at the end. Yeah, Mike, can you hold it? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Bo. All right, so now we're going to get into some um, fun stuff. So someone might say, not the academy, but maybe the culture. So maybe there's, with culture, culture is more caught than taught. Uh, Maybe culture gets to define what humanity is. So the top of page six, culture can be defined as the shared institutions, intuitions, 
patterns of life that shape a people, typically at the national, regional, local levels, political, religious levels, at a particular time in human history. Right? It's kind of the obvious thing. There's a fish know it's in water that, that if you are an American and then you move to Ghana, it's going to be very different in Ghana. They're going to have different patterns of life, institutions, intuitions, and more. So, so much, really what happens is that you have the academy teaching different things, but then it really it works itself out into the cultural level. So that's going to be all the media that Hollywood produces, right? All the shows and movies and add music to that. Or Silicon Valley, right? So whatever TikTok and all the social media and all that's going on there and, and more culture, whether it says it's not, does teach us what it means to be human. So I have cherry-picked. There's so much more that can be say that can be said, but I've cherry-picked some different examples that have been accepted and celebrated in Western culture. Before that, let me finish reading this. Um, Did you know that the word culture is derived from the Latin cultus, meaning worship? So thus how we live, move, and have our being as a society is downstream from worship. So think about this again. If there's no such thing as secular, if everybody is religious to their core, then what we see in protests marching down our street with signs being held is an act of worship. And what we see people living for and how they organize their lives is all an act of worship. Culture means it's from worship, and and so worship drives culture. Um, I have the links down below. I'll just read these. The UK's Daily Mail reported in 2015 of Paul Walsh, 52, a husband and father of seven, until he realized that he was a six-year-old girl. He left his wife and children and now lives with his adoptive mommy and daddy, spends time wearing children's girls' clothing, playing dolls, and with the couple's young grandchildren. Paul actually lived as an eight-year-old until one of the granddaughters asked if he could be her younger sister, so he became six. Paul is now called Stephanie, and in the winter he earns money by plowing snow. The article is presented in an accepting, compassionate tone that vilifies Paul's wife and kids for not accepting him as he is in his authentic self. So that's 2015. And so that was a news story from Canada making it to the UK, to my inbox in America, received as a a positive thing. So I guess the question is, um, is that what it means to be human? Um, are we able to be a grown middle-aged man and actually be a six-year-old girl who becomes an eight-year-old girl, then six-year-old girl? And then people actually adopted him to care for him. Um, next, uh, B, lowercase b, uh, Vice reported in 2015 that um, the headline was Other Kin Are People Too? They Just Identify as Non-Human. And the article uh, is pretty long, and it talks about people who identify as a dragon, a lion, a red fox, and other types of creatures. Um, one um, identified as a demonic, angelic being, actually. And, um, and I, I forgot to put the article in here about people who currently in the UK is a society who live as dogs. Um, they have they eat out of bowls, and they have dog skin suits, and they have their owners. 
So I guess the question is, is that is that what is that reality? Is that what it means to be human? Are we is it is it okay to identify as as a as a dragon or a lion? I remember when I coached boys varsity water polo up in Portland, Oregon. This was four or five years ago, and they at the high school level, Portland, are were being trained in. Um, not presuming someone's gender and whatnot. And so they all got in trouble because they said they identified as Apache attack helicopters. Um, so, so there's this. The question is, 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 so culture is teaching this. Is this right? Or um, a, a fairly recent article in, on parents promoted and celebrated seven celebrities raising their kids to be gender neutral without pressure to be either feminine or masculine, right? So Angelina Jolie, uh, Russell Brand, Jada Smith, and Kate Hudson, Adele, and more. And, you know, when the celebrities do it and they're raising their kids, that makes the headlines, and that's what's, that's we're going to let our children choose whatever their gender or non-gender is going to be when they get older. Is that what it means to be human? Next, letter D, changing the perspective. CNN reported on the firestorm surrounding Rachel Dolezal in 2015. And they didn't report because she was the head of the Spokane chapter of the NAACP. It's the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. But that Rachel was a white woman who identified as a black woman. So she just got torn apart. Steve Perry, he's a black man, CNN's education contributor, said Rachel, quote, on Twitter, said has, quote, cognitive dissonance that is straight, stunning, and self-serving. And then the then president of the NAACP said that Rachel had disrespected the culture. So, so we're beginning to see that there's different rules in our world. So... So you can be a grown man and leave your wife and your seven children and be adopted as an eight-year-old who becomes a six-year-old, and that's okay. And you can identify as a dragon lion and a fox, and that's okay. But if you are a white lady who identifies as a black lady, that is worthy of, um, well, cognitive dissonance. So there's a mental issue for Rachel Dolezal when she did that, but no one said anything like that about the, uh, the celebrities raising their kids to choose their own gender. And then letter E, you can also gauge a culture's values and taboos about humanity and God by the nature of its cuss words and profanity. I don't know if you've ever done that. I'm not recommending you do a study on cuss words, slurs, and profanity. Uh, there are books on that, but... It's actually interesting when you look at different eras of human history, there are words that are taboo that you cannot say, and there's words that are normal that you can say that are kind of edgy and, and push it a little bit. So our current cancel culture will not tolerate microaggressions, which are felt as hostile, and they can be defined as um, hostile or derogatory or negative attitudes toward stigmatized or culturally marginalized people groups. So if you are not the majority culture and then you say something, even unintentionally, 
that is felt as hostile, derogatory, or, ne- or negative towards a non-majority cultural group, that's called a microaggression, and you get in trouble for it. And yet, Karen and OK Boomer. Are some of you aware of those? If you've heard Karen, please raise your hand and not your aunt. Okay. How about OK Boomer? All right. So Karen is, this is, the, this is according to Vox. Karen is the white, entitled, middle-aged, anti-vaxxer soccer mom with speak-to-the-manager hair. <laughs> this is kind of funny. And then OK Boomer is a cutting and dismissive attitude implying the out-of-touch, irrelevant nature and blame shift of all the world's problems and woes to the boomer generation largely viewed as white people. So what I want to see here is, okay, first we were looking at this guy changing his age and his gender, and then we have people identifying as animals and non-humans, and then we have parents raising their kids to be whatever gender they want, and then we have this woman who is destroyed because she was white, but she identified as black, but they didn't accept it. And then now we have these microaggressions where people are getting canceled in social media for saying certain words that they can't say, or, or I don't know if you've listened to any comedians, how... There's movies and comedians from just five years ago, a decade ago, that are no longer acceptable or they'll be canceled because it's all microaggressions. And yet it is culturally permissible to go after white, middle-aged women. To do the memes, to say the things, and no one bats an eye. That's hypocrisy and a contradiction. And it's also okay to engage in ageism and blame everything on the boomers. Okay, boomer. Bo, I'm not going to use it in an elder meeting. I'm not white. (laughs) I just committed a microaggression. So if the culture is able to establish for us, and if culture is more caught than taught, and we learn right and wrong through shaming and taboos and cancel culture and war, we're seeing that the lay of the land is changing of what it means to be human, how we live and move in this world and more, um, shifting our perspective. Uh, I have screenshots. This is F on the top of page 7. I have screenshots dated from June 6, 2020 of the Black Lives Matter website before they changed their public face um, and it included the following quotes under the... So I clicked on what we believe and just and I screenshotted it and then they, they changed it. Here is just five snapshots of what their aim was, what their, the founders and group's aim is. Number one, we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folks. Cisgender means that you um, identify sexually with your biological gender. It's basically what you've been most of your life. But now it's a, it's a new term. Uh, number two, they go on to say, we build a space that affirms black women and is free of sexism, misogyny, 
and environments in which men are centered. Uh, so there's the feminine, feminist piece. Number three, we dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts. We disrupt, number four, the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. Let me say that one again. Their stated purpose is to, dis- to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. Mom, dad, kids. We want to disrupt that. And then five, we foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. So there were a number of, uh, of people who denounced, black people who denounced Black Lives Matter because they read what they were for. And this group capitalized on the George Floyd event and some other ones. But what I want to see here is as we're thinking about what it means to be human and humans create society and there's marriage and then there's babies and societies grow and more. And we see that this particular group stated beliefs of why they exist and what they're actively trying to do is to dismantle cis privilege remove environments that are men-centered, dismantle the patriarchal practice of requiring mothers to work, disrupting the Western-prescribed nuclear family, and uh, getting rid of the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. So there's a lot more going on there than meets the eye. That's, that's why when I wrote the article, our newsletter to us, I referred to the BLM movement as a Trojan horse and sinister brilliance. Because on the outside, who would disagree with the statement? No one should. But then when you open the horse, you see the soldiers coming out of, of destroying Western-prescribed nuclear families of black people and all people and more. So I want to move in then. So th- those are just some I, – I, I know that we can multiply more. I know that we can turn on our phones and scroll through Apple News right now and just see plenty of more fodder to add or even worse, TikTok or Instagram, Twitter and more to find out how culture is self-presenting of humanity and whatnot. But let's look underneath the hood. Let's talk about the zeitgeist, which is a super fancy German way of saying the spirit of the age. You've probably heard that phrase before, the spirit of the age. Um, And Christians are not impervious to the spirit of the age. And it's important for us to look at these because these are going to press into the coming weeks when we talk about this zeitgeist. I am going to give you, if we have time, six different, there are more, but six key spirit of the age that just floats around like an intermingled cloud of zeitgeistness. We're going to look at postmodernism, individualism, subjectivism, materialism, neo-paganism, and neo-Marxism. I doubt we'll get through all of it. Let's see what happens. Postmodernism. Probably a familiar term for most of you. It's the functional belief that truth is relative. So maybe you've heard this. Your truth, my truth. The idea of postmodernism, that there is no overarching meta-narrative that organizes all of life and holds all of life accountable. There is no one story for the world. By the way, the Bible is the one story for the world. This implies that societal truth claims, 
such as gender and sexuality, marriage and family, morality, ethics, etc., are constructs and nothing more that need not be obeyed or believed. After all, they declare God is dead, and so are his, his, his moral grip on humanity. And so what we're seeing so radically is really the fruit popping up of postmodern ideology that has been rampant in universities and schools since the 50s. And, and now it's coming to fruition with what we're seeing. So postmodernism, and none of us is immune to it. And, and we'll see that these are kind of interrelated. Look at number two. Individualism. You do you. Have you heard that one? In the end, we view ourselves, or one views oneself as the ultimate authority. Beholden to none, rejecting authority that, that one does not agree with. So we'll submit to authorities, but maybe we'll have a bad attitude with it or something along those lines. But the most authentic you is the you that does not care of anyone else's opinion, but unashamedly flaunts yourself for all to see. It's another way of saying individualism is performative. That's a technical term. But just think this way. On a stage, there's performers, and they're acting and performing a certain way. Okay, that's performative. What we're seeing in our culture with the rise of social media is that to be the authentic you... So you may not live on social media, maybe you do, but maybe your grandkids, maybe your kids and grandkids do and will. And understand that the idea with social media, when you're posting on yourself, is predominantly performative. Look at me, see me do this thing, you are seeing the authentic self of me or my falsely manicured life that I, that I post pictures about. So you'll hear a term performative being used. We might talk about that more. So the performative or the individualism is that the true you is not the complete you until embraced by society. This is really important. This is something that Carl Truman argues in his book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. That one of the reasons why politics is marinated and baked in through all of this is you have um, various types of sexual minority groups. I'm not talking about race, just other minority groups or perceived minority groups who believe they don't have power, but if they can gain legitimacy in the eyes of the state, then that gives them legitimacy in the eyes of the world. And so that's why you see a lot of politicking around individualism and more. But, the, but what undergirds that is you are not you until the authentic you is on the outside of you. And what you feel on the outside must be displayed on the outside, inside the outside. So that guy Paul, who became six years old, was celebrated because he was being his authentic self and doing what he felt on the inside. And so people had to celebrate him for that. i got to keep going. Subjectivism. We can circle back to questions. I am not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you have began the statement by saying, I feel that... Da, 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 da. Subjectivism... Notice how, just, just listen, listen. Notice how all truth claims, thoughts, attitudes, opinions, etc. are prefaced by a person saying, I feel that, and then they make a claim. I feel that you should vote for this person. I feel that you should buy this house. I feel that you should date this person. I feel that you should get out of this relationship. Our language as a society has changed because of the postmodern truth is relative, 
subjective nature of individualism where my feelings are the source of my truth. And so I begin by saying, I feel that. And I want to tell you that that's wrong. I want to challenge you to take the vocabulary out of your mouth and don't say, I feel that. Say, I think that, or the Bible says this. Show that your claim is not grounded in yourself. It's grounded outside of us in something else. But if you want to go to Chick-fil-A, say, I feel like going to Chick-fil-A. I'm not saying there, there are t- – so I, I'm being specific. It's when a truth claim is made, prefaced with I feel that. And that shows that we live in a subjective culture, meaning that it's really not objective and concrete. It's squishy and feely and subjective. So those combine together. So that guy could say I feel like I am a six-year-old girl. That has to be true for him because, well, we're postmodern. And individualists and subjectivists, so we have to support him in that, as the cultural thinking is. We don't do that. Number four, materialism. Two different but true senses. One is the one that probably comes to mind first. Physical comfort and possessions are the key to status, satisfaction, and happiness in my life. Whatever and whoever I think will make me happy, I will pursue until I am no longer happy. Then I will discard it or them. But there's another way that materialism shows up. So often called scientific materialism. It's a fancy way of saying all that matters is matter. There is no spiritual world, only chemicals, electrical impulses, and social engineering. We came from animals, we are animals, and we will die and cease to exist as animals. When you are a materialist, which is also a key feature of our day and age, and there is no spiritual world, there is no overarching morals, there is no accountability, and so that leads to social Darwinism, which is a survival of the fittest socially, economically, politically. So the scientific materialist is going to say, I don't care if you think that you're a six-year-old girl. Just, well, you do you. For a whole host of combined reasons of the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age. Give me one more. Number five. It's eight o'clock. I have to let you go. I'd love to answer questions. Stay afterwards. We can talk about it. And I'll give us plenty of time to talk about neo-Marxism and more at the beginning of next week. Number five, neo-paganism, neo-gnosticism, and monism. Okay, what does that mean? So all three of these, this is going to be the opposite of scientific materialism. The materialist says all that matters is matter. There's nothing spiritual. Those feelings you have is hormones and electrical impulses, nothing else. There's no spirit or soul inside you. You're an animal. Neo-paganism, neo-gnosticism, and monism are really all three in the same bed, same idea, but they're a little bit different. What does that mean? They all emphasize the spirit over the body. So whereas materialism is only body, this is kind of body and spirit, but spirit is where it's at, not your body. So neo-gnosticism. Gnosticism is the resurgence of an ancient heresy around the time of Christ, a little bit before really took off a couple hundred years into the birth of the church. It's an ancient heresy that taught that there's secret insider knowledge that gave you true insight into the spiritual world. 
The material world and the flesh are inferior, bad, and even evil. That's what Gnosticism is. So the neo-Gnosticism of today is the same thing. You see it in many different disciplines. Neo-Gnosticism in this guise is in the church. This is in the church because we confuse what it means to be in the flesh. We think our skin and bones are bad. They're not. It's the sinful nature. But we'll get there in a couple weeks. So neo-Gnostic asceticism. Fancy way of saying there's people who believe that because the material world is evil or not as good as the spiritual, one must do all they can to avoid the evils of the world, escape the evils of the world through self-affliction, deprivation, anything else that can free oneself from the flesh. But more so the next one, neo-Gnostic hedonism. This is what's everywhere. Since the material world is evil, there's no or or less important than the spiritual. There's no consequence to the indulgence of the flesh since one will ultimately be liberated from the material world. So what you, man, do what you feel. And if it feels good, do it. That's, that's what this is. So you see that in, in, our, in our culture where um, what God calls sin, our culture says is good and more. So what's neo-paganism? Right, So the New Age spiritualism of the 60s and 70s that basically married Native American, Hindu, and Buddhist ideals into earth worship. It's like a next iteration of that, neo-paganism is, and it's focused more on pre-Christian Western Nordic religions. Vikings, witchcraft, occult, druids. Things along those lines. Um, it's in music and, and more. And what it, these all share together is there's an, there's an aspect of, uh, of earth worship and controlling and conjuring spirits and things like that. And there's a, there's a professor. His name is Dr. Peter Jones. He's a believer. He used to be, I don't know if he still is there maybe, at Westminster Theological Seminary. Most of his career has been addressing the issue of this, and he calls it monism. And because that's such a weird word and no one knows what it means, his wife told him to change it to oneism, and that's the way to think about it. And so he writes about oneism and twoism. And what he says is when you see the rise of this idea that the spirit is really what's, where it's at and the flesh doesn't matter, and when you see the rise of these neo-pagan religions and resurgence of witchcraft and druids and things along those lines, what undergirds all of this new age-ness, there's a whole bunch out there, is the fundamental belief that all that exists is ultimately one and interconnected. You have the Gaia hypothesis, which believes that the earth is a living organism. So you have earth worship there, so we can't destroy the environment. There's all these different ideas, but what is undergirds it is that there's only one. And it could all be deity or the deities or something along those lines, but it's all interconnected. In contrast to twoism, oneism and twoism, and Christians believe in twoism, namely that there is a creator and there is creation. And there's a distinction between the two. And so what we see then in culture about what it means to be human is these people are going to say the spiritual side of me is what's important. What I do with my flesh doesn't matter. And to really engage with living as a human, I need to engage with earth worship and ancient non-Christian religions and more. 
And so, and the ultimate goal there is really to get one with the universe. So those are different ways. Those are the spirit of the age, big ideas. That if you understand what they are, and then you begin to read the newspaper, watch the movie, listen to the songs, scroll on the social media, you begin to spot that these ideas are undergirding and then defining for teenagers and everybody what it means to be human and how to live, move, and have your being in this world. Well, I'm going to go, it's, it's 8.06, our class ends at 8. We need to end there. We'll pick this right up uh, next week. I would love to stay and take any questions if you have any. Um, Bo, I don't know if you're willing to maybe run a mic for a little bit longer. Sure. Uh, but the rest of you are dismissed. Let me pray for us to dismiss us, and then I'm happy to take any questions. Lord, we've covered a lot of isms, a lot of grounds. We look at a lot of scripture, but it comes down to that you, uh, you are light, Lord Jesus. Your word is a light and lamp to our feet, and your light shines in the darkness. We live in a world that tries to understand itself apart from your revelation. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace and love to both help those trapped in the lies of the world and also destroy strongholds and tear down false ideologies. Would you let this time be profitable and helpful for us? And please, Lord, go with us as we go from this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. If you have, anybody have a question they wanted to ask that they think would be helpful for everybody, because it probably will be? One parting shot when Mike gives his question. One parting shot. So just next week, if you want, read Genesis 1. We're going to be getting into Bible and doing big Bible studies. Lord willing, beginning next week. Yeah, Mike. Um, when we moved here 18 years ago, it was for me to go to NAU. And so a lot of this, I know it's current, but it was current back then as well. And when I, coming with a Christian perspective, I had to learn how to couch it, let's say for an assignment or a test. I would, I would couch my answer, give them the answer they wanted by saying, according to the information presented in this class or by the text, this is the answer. Um, if it, sometimes it opened doors, sometimes it didn't. In my native, I was a Native American minor, and uh, in my government, uh, Native American um, contracts and treaty class, um, the teacher started the class by saying, if you are white, if you're male, if you're Christian, you're the enemy, and you might as well leave the class right now. Now, of course, I didn't, and I made her life Hades. Uh, because whenever she said something that was too generalistic, I would raise my hand and ask her to clarify, or I would challenge it as far as being factual or just a general comment. So by the end of the semester, I would raise my hand. She says, okay, Mr. Kina would have asked me, that, you know, and then she would give more of a clarification. Sometimes you just get ridiculed. I've been ridiculed by professors, you know, that's going to happen. And I don't even know if it's even more closed now than when I was here 18 years ago. That's good, Mike. So to see how you answered that. So you may have to answer the question to get an A on the test, but in a way that he was saying, how do you preface your answers? According to the... Uh, according to the professor, according to our text, according to this class.
So you're regurgitating information that was given, not yes. being agreed with it. Exactly. And, and, then, so, and sometimes it opened up for discussion. And then if there was a sweeping truth claim that was yes. not substantiated, you would just say, could you actually give me an example of what you mean? Exactly. On that? Thanks, Mike. You wouldn't want to say according to the garbage in this syllabus? Or... <laughs> um, just to take that a little farther, he's talking about a few years ago, what about today and everything we do? How do you respond to it out in the general public? What do you mean? Or could you clarify a little bit more? Okay. He was he made the statement that if there was something that he disagreed with, he said, I would say the course presented this oh. way or whatever. And he's talking about in school. Mm -hmm. And I know I've been in school a lot. Um, that is more than just in the schools. What about you going for a job? You, you make an application for a job. And question like that comes up. Yeah, well, if you're, if you're engaging with somebody, it's really easy in the moment when they ask a question to feel like you have to give a response right away. But what do you mean by that is a good question to ask. Or how do you know that's true? And when you ask the question, how do you know that true, that you're tr that's true, it begins to drill down into their belief system, which... As Christians, we would believe any system other than Christianity is inherently self-contradictory at its core. You just have to drill deep down enough. The tricky thing is because it's postmodernism, they're just going to say, well, that's what I believe is my truth. So then you have to start arguing about objective reality, which is tricky. Mandy? I was just going to say, um, it's, I think things that help with that is like what you said, knowing the truth and... Um, Training, Emir one time years ago sent me an article about training our brains so that we can recognize what's truth and what's not truth. And I think that's incredibly helpful. And then also learning how to articulate why the lie is a lie. So that, because I think if you've been in Christian circles enough, you can say, well, you know, that just doesn't feel right, but you can't explain why. And then you can be, um, taken captive, right, by very effective communicators. But if you can learn how to articulate why truth is truth um, from the Bible and from reality, um, that, that can be very powerful, even if you're the only person you convince, right? But it helps you stay strong. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's actually a good tagline for the class. That's, that's the aim here is to, is so the, if someone says, well, why do Christians think homosexual marriage is not marriage. We're actually going to see from Scripture why, why that is. And not just a surface verse, but actually get the whole theology to understand why that is. Yes, David. Any, any other questions? Sam. So, yeah, I actually work at an AU, and uh, I've seen it kind of spiraling more and more. Um, one of the arguments that you'll get is not even an argument. Logic and reason is thrown out the window. If you dig deep enough with them, you get to a point where they know that what you're saying is true, but they'll shut you down. They'll call you racist. They'll call you homophobic. They'll call you intolerant. They'll say you have white privilege. Um, all to shut you down because what you're saying is actually cutting into what they believe. Um, and the sadness is, is that they have the backing of culture behind them. 
and especially in more liberal universities, they have the university backing them too. So for me, I currently have a red flag in HR simply because I stood for logic and truth and um, <laughs> they didn't like it, you know, and so um, that will happen. Um, and so I guess my question would be like, as a Christian standing for the truth, how do we best respond when people won't even listen to logic and reason anymore? Like, what do we do? That's a good question, brother. And you, I mean, that's such a good point, too, of what we're saying, where it, it, what we're seeing is that it just evolves into name calling. It's, it's seventh grade recess. And, and it's an intellectual suicide, really, is what it is, because people are unwilling to think through ideas or have discourse. We need to really study what the Bible says about suffering, persecution, and how Jesus responded in suffering and persecution. I also think that we need to think real hard and, um, about how to provide apologetics to those questions beyond just name-calling. I don't have a quick answer for that. But, but I do think that you standing your ground in a Christ-like way, right? It's very easy. So the truth is offensive. We don't need to be offensive. Sometimes we may need to be, but there's a, there's a way of doing it that, that's not, um, that's Christ-like. That, that remembers that we have to love our enemies and persecute evil with good. So how we do that, case by case, and we're going to have to figure that out together. It's good. And it is getting worse. If you want us, if you want really happy reading, you can read the article um, that I have footnoted there on the bottom of page nine about the plans for NAU for 2024 uh, academically. Um, what's that? Yeah, and I put just a really enjoyable quote there in the middle of the page for you to see where it's going. But it has a lot of links to take you to the primary sources of what they've NAU has produced regarding regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can I say something? Yeah, please, brother. So just recently, I don't know if you may have seen in the news, uh, uh, investigative reporter, there was two schools. One was a, a principal and one was, well, I think they were both principals, two separate schools, where they actually went undercover and interviewed them and, on who they choose and how they hire people. And it was very clear that they discriminated against um, those who are uh, right or conservative absolutely clear and actually they were really against uh, Catholics because they just kind of categorized Catholics specifically Protestants unfortunately were not as uh, conservative as as uh, as Catholics according to them but they caught them just literally red-handed um, saying that they will not hire them if they are uh, uh, right-leaning or religious because they're not going to be able to indoctrinate them and they're not going to stand behind the ideologies that they're trying to push forward through their educational system. So that just recently came out in the last couple of days. You guys can Google that and YouTube it and, and find that's pretty interesting. I can't say so, but I would imagine that that's probably prevalent in a lot of schools, even right here in good old Flagstaff, USA. So I think what, you know, takeaway is there's this extremely rapid societal shift I mean, just, you know, blink of an eye. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, and we are the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, armed with the gospel and the truth of his life, death, and resurrection. And I do think that the world is so quickly, and so many really young people have not known anything else than are just drinking in these false ideologies that when they go down the 
gender transition road, hormone therapy, or those different things, when it's the same-sex marriage, when it's all of the, anything that's contrary to the word of God, we alone, the church, is going to have the true definition of sexuality, gender, marriage, and humanity. And so that's where the truth will be set free if, if we do that. We have to remember that there's ideologies um, that um, a new species of Samaritan is arising. Right? Remember that parable from Jesus? He basically took who was the most um, non-religious outcast person in society, and then all the Pharisees went to the other side of the road except for the good Samaritan and then helped that person. We have to be careful that we're not going to be the ones who are going to be the self-righteous Pharisees going to the other side of the road when we could go to the person who is um, embraces all of these things and hates Jesus. And then when Jesus brings their world crashing down upon them and saves them, to use you to share the gospel with them and love them and disciple them. And it's going to take a while to undo a lot of beliefs. And there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to have to think through ethically. What what, what do you do with a, with, a, with a person who transitions to a different um, outward gender and then in adult life gets saved? Do, do they retransition back? Who pays for that? How do you do that? I mean, there, there's ethic, there are ethical questions because of the rise of technology that we just haven't even had to address yet. Um, not to mention plural marriages and things along those lines and more. So, uh, so we need Jesus. Okay. Love you guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks for staying. Good night.